Lori Vallow was described by many as a devout Mormon and an attentive, caring mother. But as the years went on, Lori's religious beliefs began to diverge from the teachings of the church. Led by her idol, doomsday author Chad Daybell, Lori was convinced that the end was near and began preparing for the second coming of Christ. Lori was not going to let anyone or anything stand in the way of completing her mission from God, which made her a danger to anyone that crossed her path, including her own children. I'm Marina. With me, I have my two best friends, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. This is a doozy, guys. I have um, about 30 pages of notes to, t- to tell you guys. In part one. <laughs> part, part one is um, like 14 pages. Okay. All right. I'm we'll see. super excited because I feel like what you described, we could be talking about some cult kind of stuff, like doomsday mm-hmm. prepping kind of cults and yes. not loving the part about being a danger to her own children, mm-hmm. but I think you're going to take us on a journey today. It is going to be a journey. Before we start our journey, though, uh, we have some shout outs for our Patreon gremlins. So we want to give a big shout out and thank you to Megan M. Also known as Megan the Cat Lady. Yay, Megan, we love you. We love you. And also Elizabeth S. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Our love for our gremlins is free. But if you'd like to support us and get some extras along the way, check out our Patreon. So today we're talking about Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell, and the Doomsday Murders. For this episode, I read the book The Doomsday Mother by John Glatt. There's also a Netflix docuseries on this case called The Sins of Our Mother, which you guys have to watch. I've seen that it is on Netflix. I have not watched it, I thought you were going to just say you saw it, and I was going to be so No, that's why I had to be careful about my wording. Okay. (laughs) You guys have to watch it once I'm done telling you about this. And I also watched, uh, there's a 48 Hours episode where they talked to uh, Chad Daybell's family. How did you, which, was it one of those that you, through which you found this case, or how did you find it? I knew about this case. I heard about it on a different podcast. And Mm -hmm. then when I looked, um, and then I saw that Sins of Our Mother came out Mm -hmm. and realized it was that case. Mm -hmm. So then I watched the Netflix and then went into the book. And And that's why we have 30 pages. I got immersed in it. I like, because I, sometimes I just hear of a case and then I want to go do it and research it. And then sometimes you guys suggest them. And then sometimes I go and think I want a case about like in the 1800s, last case, or I want something with um, unresolved or something like that. So I was just curious what your method was. Yeah, no, this one. So I knew the Netflix series came out and then I looked it up and their trials will be, spoiler alert, their trials, um, (laughs) their trials will be proceeding in the near future. So we may have an update Mm -hmm. at some point. Hopefully. All right. So I want to start out talking about Lori and her background. Lori Noreen Cox was born on June 26, 1973 in Rialto, California to Barry and Janice Cox. She was one of six in the Cox family, although her sister, who was born two years before her, tragically died at the age of six weeks. The Cox family lived in a large house in a very exclusive golf community, which they could afford because Barry was a successful life insurance underwriter. Insurance. We love it. We can't get away from it. (laughs) We love insurance. So along with that, Lori grew up spoiled, getting everything she wanted. 
Lori's father was a Mormon and a lifelong member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Cox children were all active in the children's program at the church, and the family had a copy of the Book of Mormon at home. Lori was devout and even attended religious seminary classes every morning before her regular school classes. Oh, wow. Initially, you may be thinking, wow, sounds like Lori came from a wealthy, religious, wholesome family. Mm -hmm. Pretty Mm -hmm. much. I am thinking that. As we know, things are not always (laughs) as they seem. Based on some of their ideologies, Lori's parents may not have been fully in touch with reality, which may be genetic based on this story. Lori's parents were frequently embattled with the IRS. Ooh. Barry wrote a manifesto called How the American Public Can Dismantle the IRS, dedicating it to all freedom-loving USA citizens. Oh. I I bet Marvin Heemeyer and he would be Mm -hmm. good pals. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Reading all the important signs from the universe. All of the signs. Barry Cox would often argue that taxes were illegal and that the IRS was a criminal organization, which most of us have probably felt that way when (laughs) we've seen the taxes taken out of our (laughs) paychecks. Am I right? That position didn't really work out for Barry because in 99, he was sentenced to a year and a day in prison and ordered to pay almost a quarter of a million dollars in restitution to the IRS for his back taxes. Oops. The only thing in life that's certain is death and taxes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Lori's parents were apparently more interested in their own lavish lifestyle than their children. Barry and Janice would leave the kids alone and go to Hawaii for weeks at a time. They gave their 16-year-old son, Alex, blank checks for food, putting him in charge of Lori and the youngest daughter, Summer. Alex would cash the checks and spend the money on himself and parties for his friends, so Lori would have to take care of Summer. I can't say that I wouldn't be tempted to do Uh, the same as Alex did. And that's why you don't leave your 16-year-old alone for weeks on end. Right. More than just pizza and wings money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yep. It's not enough, Dad. <laughs> it's not enough. What if we want wings? Yeah. <laughs> Lori also mentioned to a close friend in seventh grade that her brother Alex wanted to have sex with her. So if that was true, it would not have been good that Lori's parents were leaving them all unattended. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. But Lori's parents certainly were not always absent. Janice was present enough to judge Lori and decide that when Lori was in sixth grade, she needed to go on a strict diet to lose weight to become a cheerleader. No. That's really hard. Like, you're really messing up that girl at Mm -hmm. a young age. Mm -hmm. Janice coached the church softball team and made Lori join. She also ridiculed Lori in front of her friends if she saw Lori eating something she considered fattening. Jeez. Yeah, it's (laughs) fucked up. Lori started high school in the fall of 1988. Due to her mother's strict diet, Lori had slimmed down and made the cheerleading squad as the flyer. Lori was a good student and was popular in high school, her life revolving around cheerleading. Her senior year, she started dating a guy named Nelson. Lori graduated high school in the summer of 91 and soon after moved in with Nelson. In 92, against their parents' wishes, Lori eloped in Las Vegas and none of their family was present for the wedding. The marriage didn't last long, and Lori got a divorce, claiming that Nelson was physically abusive, which may or may not have been true. After her marriage to Nelson, Lori moved to Austin, Texas, and was in an on-again, off-again relationship with William LaJoya. The relationship was rocky from the start, and Lori was frustrated that William wouldn't convert to the Mormon religion. The relationship turned violent, and in July 95, Lori told police that William hit her in the mouth and threw her on the bed. Police did observe a cut to Lori's mouth, and William was charged with assault, but the case was later dismissed because Lori never showed up for any court hearings. Nothing fixes a tumultuous relationship quite like a newborn baby. Oh, no. So when Lori found out she was pregnant, Lori and William were married. None of her family attended that wedding either. Oh, for two, Lori. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the marriage continued just like their relationship. 
rocky with police involvement. Mm. Lori actually swore an affidavit that William was physically and mentally abusing her and threatened the life of her and her unborn child. That case, like the first, was also dismissed. For the same reason? Did she not show up? I believe so. Uh. Are we sensing a pattern here? Yeah. Yep. Lori gave birth to a baby boy in April 8th, 1996, whom she named Colby. Oh, hey. (laughs) Shout out to Colby. William had moved out, but when baby Colby was born, he agreed to convert to Mormonism so that the couple could raise the baby together. Oh, baby Colby. Just a little cute (laughs) baby. giggle. A little baby Colby. A little baby Colby. But there was no happily ever after. Lori ended up bringing a bizarre criminal complaint against William. She alleged that when she moved into William's parents' house with him, he took her car keys and imprisoned her and baby Colby for several months. She said that she was able to escape one night at 4 a.m. when William was passed out drunk. She said William begged her to return, and she did a few weeks later. Not smart. Shockingly, things didn't work out after that either. It ended with her claiming that he stole her car and all her belongings, which she ultimately got back. Marriage number two ended in divorce. Yep. Jeez. In 2001, Lori met soon-to-be Mr. Lori number three, Joe Mr. Ryan. Lori. <laughs> In early 2002, Joe proposed and Lori accepted, so long as Joe converted to Mormonism. Joe agreed, and the two married on a beach in Maui. None of her family were present. Mm-hmm. Lori was soon pregnant, and her daughter, Tylee, was born on September 24th, 2002. Unfortunately, Lori soon found out that Joe was not the knight in shining armor that she had imagined. Her son, Colby, said that Joe was physically abusive towards him, spanking him and hitting him on the head. And everyone also confirmed that Joe had an explosive temper, which even his sister witnessed. Poor baby Colby. Mm. So things were rocky in that relationship as well. As Lori's third marriage was falling apart, she started to throw herself into the Mormon religion and became even more spiritual and in tune with God's word. In 2003, Lori auditioned for the Wheel of Fortune because God told her that she would win big. And did she? She did. Lori aced her audition and got onto the show winning $17,500. Okay. So like 20 bucks after taxes, speaking of? (laughs) Approximately. (laughs) Not in that family, though. You just don't pay that. Exactly. You just don't pay. What are taxes? (laughs) A few months later, Lori entered and won the Mrs. Hayes County beauty pageant. Because of her pageant win, Lori qualified for the Mrs. Texas pageant. During the interview portion, the judges asked what made her tick. She said, being a good mom is very important to me, and a good wife, and a good worker, and being all those things together is not easy. So I'm basically a ticking time bomb. Oh, oh I, it's not the direction yeah. I would think but you'd it go was with okay. that. I, I thought it was going to be, so I'm basically a superhero. That is also what I thought. Uh, no, she went the other way with yep. it. Quick question. Mrs. versus Miss Texas? Because she's married. That is literally the reason? Yeah. So there's, in the pageant circuit... There's Miss States, so there's like a Miss Connecticut, and then there's a Mrs. Connecticut. I genuinely had no idea. For people who are married. Huh. Fun fact, back in ye olde times, Marina was in a pageant. Um, I was. I was a young Miss name of our town, Connecticut. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It just blew my mind. Not not that I knew you were in the pageant circuit, but... You didn't know I was crowned? No, that part I knew too. No, the the oh, misses versus, versus miss. It's just I should know, given the pageant circuit, that it's that archaic. But mm-hmm. so, uh, about how old is Lori? Because we're in two thousand and three right now. Yes, so she's about thirty. Okay. 
A few days after the pageant, Lori started her divorce proceedings. Lori left with Tylee and Colby and moved in with her parents in San Antonio, Texas. She flew her 15-year-old niece, Melanie, out to Nanny, and the two became close during that time. Melanie will play a part in this story later on. Okay. In 2005, Lori's divorce with her third husband, Joe, was finalized, and the couple agreed that they would share custody of Tylee. Joe had to pay $1,500 a month in child support, and the divorce court also required Joe to take out a life insurance policy for himself, naming Lori as the prime beneficiary, who would receive no less than $350,000 for Tylee if Joe died. Interesting. Around this time, Lori didn't have much. She actually filed for bankruptcy, owing three quarters of a million dollars to creditors, $100,000 in state and federal taxes, it's a, a family tradition, <laughs> and another 17000 in credit card debt. Yikes. That's a lot. That's, a, That's lot. a lot. But Lori's financial luck changed. In 2005, Lori was working as a hairstylist in the Wildflower Salon in Austin, Texas, when Charles Valla walked in. Mr. Lori the Fourth. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought you were going to say Joe died. <laughs> I thought so too, yeah. <laughs> Charles was handsome and well-dressed in an expensive suit. He was an accomplished financial planner and was in great shape, a former college baseball player who'd been drafted to the Houston Astros. Charles asked Lori on a date, and the rest was history. Like Lori, Charles, too, was recently divorced and also had two children, two sons, Cole and Zach. Oh, Cole and Colby. Mm. Oh, yeah. There you go. In 2006, Lori and Charles were married in Las Vegas. Per usual, no one from Lori's family attended the ceremony. Both Lori and Charles ended up in heated custody battles concerning their children. In fact, both spouses had the same judge for the hearings, and the matters ended up so entwined that the judge eventually combined the two cases. Wow. That seems unheard of. I don't know if it is, but... I don't do family court, but I think that would probably be unusual. Yeah, yeah. Charles's ex-wife, Cheryl, commented that she noticed Lori loved being the center of all of the court drama, and she considered her unstable. Cheryl was hesitant to have her around her boys. Lori and Joe's custody issues were especially heated concerning Tylee, because Colby told his mother when he was around eight years old that Joe had sexually abused him. Lori reported the sexual abuse of Colby and Tylee to the sheriff's office. Tylee was only three at the time Lori reported these allegations, so I think Lori was operating under the assumption that if Joe did it to Colby, he must have done it to Tylee as well. Mm. The kids were both interviewed. Tylee did not have much to say, but Colby apparently explained the abuse in detail. Joe hadn't seen Tylee for 18 months at that point and filed a motion against Lori in court for keeping Tylee from him. It was all very contentious. I don't blame Lori for keeping Tylee away after the fact, but it sounds like she had been keeping her from him even before that. Mm. Based upon the accusations, Joe Ryan's house was searched for DNA evidence. He was ordered to undergo a polygraph and psychosexual assessment, both of which showed no cause for concern. When Tylee was four and a half, she was interviewed by a therapist and told her that Joe had never hurt her or touched her inappropriately, which the therapist said was shocking to Lori. On another occasion, a therapist noted that Lori was caught coaching Tylee to say damaging things about Joe. Yeah, it's also entirely possible that Joe only sexually assaulted Colby and not Tylee, who was his own flesh and blood. Mm. Correct. So, Because Lori's just making the assumption here that that must have happened since it happened to one of her children. It obviously had to have happened to the other. 
I think she was also coaching Tylee to try to right. just get rid of Joe yep. and not have to deal with that situation. Joe desperately fought for visitation with his daughter. The first time Joe was finally able to see Tylee again in August 2007 was at a visitation center with Lori present. Joe spent about two hours with Tylee, and when the meeting was over, Tylee and Lori left, getting a 15-minute head start. When Joe left, he was approached by a man in the parking lot. The man pulled a taser on him and tased him in the chest and then the back. Joe said he actually thought he'd been shot at first, and he jumped up, running for his life. He yelled for a witness to call 911, at which point the man fled. The man that tased Joe was caught and identified as Alex Cox, Lori's brother. Oh, oh! I was going to ask if Lori was still in contact with her family, if they haven't been present at all her weddings. I wondered if she still talked with them, but it sounds like maybe she did. She did. They weren't ostracized, but I think all of her marriages, I think either they didn't bless them. And then other times I think she just eloped and did it on yeah. a whim. So they just happened to not be present for any of her weddings. Lori and Tylee later admitted that they were passengers in Alex's car when Joe was attacked and watched the whole thing unfold. Alex was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and was sentenced to 90 days in jail after pleading guilty. Lori and Alex both admitted that Alex was trying to kill Joe. After being tased, Joe Ryan suffered from heart problems that he believes were the result of Alex's actions. He said his health was permanently affected and he started drinking heavily. Joe had another visit scheduled with Tylee in early January 2008, which Lori and Tylee no-showed for. The next visit did happen, but as Joe was leaving with Tylee and his supervisor, two pickup trucks began following them. Joe was nervous and called 911 to get a police escort. Later that night, after dropping Tylee back with Lori, Joe got a phone message threatening him against any further visitation. Tylee's guardian ad litem noted her concern for the drama going on in Tylee's life and noted that Tylee was absolutely unfazed when they were being followed by the pickup trucks when her father was visibly shaken. The GAL noted that she suffered from a high level of repressed anxiety, endangering her emotional and mental health. The visitations between Tylee and Joe were always fraught with tension, and Tylee was regularly seeing therapists who were noticing inconsistencies in her accounts of whether or not Joe had molested her. Mm. The therapist suspected Tylee of being coached. For example, in June 2008, Tylee said she didn't want to stay overnight with her dad because he's molested her and Colby. Two weeks later, Tylee had a breakdown about confronting Joe about it because she said he might be mad because, quote, maybe it wasn't true. Mm. Tylee had her first overnight in August 2008, and the supervisor reported that Tylee took pictures all over the house because Lori had asked her to. This, oh, no. This poor child is being used as a weapon. Yep. Like, ugh, this is horrible. Despicable. Yeah. Despicable. In September 2008, Lori and Charles moved to Chandler, Arizona. Charles had already been traveling there for work, Lori didn't need to work, and Lori's brother Alex lived just down the road. Lori didn't care that Joe now had to travel... 2,000 miles round trip to visit Tylee. Joe's lawyer filed a series of motions to get Lori to move back to Texas with Tylee, but he was unsuccessful. Joe eventually moved to Phoenix and took a job with a 40% cut in salary to be closer to Tylee. Oh, wow. The family had a few uneventful years, but the year 2013 brought big changes for the Vallos. In May 2012, Charles's nephew had a baby boy named Cannon. Charles's nephew and his girlfriend were both addicted to drugs, so Cannon was taken in by his grandmother, Kay, Charles's sister, and her husband, Larry Woodcock. So Kay is Charles's sister, 
So the baby yes. is Charles's nephew. Got it? Got it. Okay. It took, it took it's me. It's a family. <laughs> <laughs> it took me longer than I would like to admit to just picture that in my brain. Kay and Larry absolutely adored their grandson, who they renamed Joshua Jackson, a.k.a. J.J., Kay and Larry ran a thriving transportation company and had to work 24-7, so taking care of JJ and giving him the attention that he needed was difficult, especially considering that he had been born addicted to drugs and was also diagnosed later with autism. Given the circumstances, Lori and Charles offered to adopt JJ, which the Woodcocks said was the easiest, hardest decision they ever made. Lori and Charles brought JJ home in February 2013 and began the official adoption process. Colby and Tylee instantly fell in love with their new baby brother. Oh, that's so sweet. In early 2014, Lori and Charles decided to move to the Hawaiian island of Kauai after Colby graduated from high school and JJ's official adoption papers were signed. The family made the move in August, including Lori's parents, and they all quickly adapted to island life. On their first weekend there, Lori and Charles attended the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in nearby Hanalei, and Lori quickly made friends with a woman named April who was also divorced and saw herself in Lori. I feel like I've been relatively quiet through this recording, letting you tell us the facts, because in my mind, I'm thinking like any one of these points could have been a case. And you're saying them so casually that I'm very concerned. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like yes. to Laura's point, yes. like there are some things here that are concerning and we're just kind of like going right by them. So mm -hmm. in my head now, I'm like, where is the murder? When are the murders? How many murders? Tell me about them. Yeah, I'm going to take a shoe and chuck it at your face. That's what's, that's what's going to happen when the shoe drops. Oh, okay. It will drop on your face. It will, yes. it will drop hard. Yes, I will chuck it at your face. I will remain silent now. <laughs> Lori became very involved in the church in Hawaii, and Lori and April would spend time together talking about their beliefs. At this time, Lori's beliefs seemed to still be pretty mainstream, but she was devout and extremely spiritual. As she became more involved with the church, Lori told April that she didn't feel that Charles was her spiritual equal and that he was holding her back. Charles did convert to Mormonism for Lori, but she said he didn't understand the principles the way that she did. The family enjoyed their years in Hawaii, but in the summer of 2017, they abruptly moved back to the mainland in the footsteps of Lori's parents. Lori's parents had $425,000 in unpaid income taxes. The IRS issued a notice of levy on Janice's social security income. Janice filed an 80-page lawsuit claiming that the taxes were illegal and that she was immune from paying them. If you could believe it, the district court dismissed that lawsuit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was soon after that dismissal that the family fled Hawaii, probably due to the cost of living. The Vallow family moved into a home back in Chandler, Arizona, and Lori began distancing herself from Charles. She'd started to focus on books and podcasts that were radical offshoots of the Mormon religion, and she felt alienated from Charles on a religious level. Lori began reading about doomsday prophecies and the end of times. She started going to the Mormon temple every day to pray for hours, where she said spirit voices spoke to her to guide her. She believed that she was one of the chosen 144,000 who would survive the end times to witness the second coming of Christ. Charles built Lori a room full of mirrors that she would use every night, dancing to her favorite religious music as a means of meditation and prayer. In a room full of mirrors. Yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm very much appreciating your faces. <laughs> I, I have so many thoughts. I was just thinking on that last one that I would probably, I would 
keel over. I think it would make me it would make me dizzy and or I'd walk into the wall. <laughs> Dancing in a room full of mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine one of those what are those um mazes at the at a I like the fun houses. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking I don't want to see myself from all angles. No, I don't want that 360 <laughs> view no. as I'm dancing to music and it's... meditating. That would be quite disruptive to my thoughts. <laughs> it's bad enough at TJ Maxx. <laughs> Charles was not the only one that Lori was acting strangely around. Colby had left Hawaii to go to college where he met his fiance, Kelsey. Kelsey was not Mormon, and Lori acted jealous and weird around her when she was introduced, acting like Kelsey was stealing Colby from her. Lori was treating Colby more like a boyfriend than a son. Ooh, I don't like this. Oh. I'm getting Mm-mm. nervous for him. Colby and Kelsey got married in January 2018 in the backyard of the Vallow home, and they were excited that everyone was together. When the family went to take formal group pictures of the wedding, Colby asked where Tylee was, and Lori said she let her go on a ski trip, which really hurt Colby. What the heck? So Tylee's not in any of the pictures of their oh. formal wedding photos. At least JJ was doing well during this time. Charles had signed up for an eight-month in-home training for a black golden doodle service dog for JJ that they named Bailey. Oh, Oh, that's so sweet. Despite her diverging religious beliefs, the dog trainer noted that Lori was always attentive to JJ and his needs. The first night that Bailey slept with JJ was one of the first nights that JJ did not get out of bed in the middle of the night. Lori was happy, too, because her relationship with Joe Ryan improved as well. Because he died. (laughs) <laughs> i was like how did that improve after all this time because <laughs> he, he she got three hundred thousand dollars out yes. of it mm-hmm. joe had died alone in his home of oh. a heart attack in april 2018 and he decomposed for three weeks before anyone smelled him and discovered his body that was a terrible time to take a sip of beer <laughs> <laughs> that poor oh, man that's gosh. so horrific and a heart a heart attack of all just things say, like after right. being tased by right. alex and having heart issues for the remainder yep. of his days oh yep Gosh. And that he was alone. Yeah. So sad. The only pictures Joe had on the wall in his apartment were of his beloved daughter, Tylee. Mm. No one claimed Joe's body, including Lori. And he was eventually cremated without a proper funeral. Phoenix police had called Lori about Joe's death when they saw that she was listed as the next of kin. And she said she hadn't seen him in about two years. Lori brought Tylee to the apartment to collect his photo albums and files where Tylee could see the spot where her father had been decomposing. Oh, oh no, no. Tylee. Lori then cashed in his life insurance policy per the d- terms of their divorce agreement and started collecting his social security for Tylee. Regarding Joe's death, Lori told her sister-in-law, Kay, it's all good. He was evil and needed to die. Wow. Yeah, that's cold. Very. Now, did Tylee remember much like how old was she so she was 16 Oof. and she had seen him how recently like because they moved all around so she was like 2,000 miles away for a few years but still she probably saw him until she was eight or nine or ten or somewhere around there yeah i don't know i don't think i don't think that Lori let her see him as often and i would assume that as tylee got older she probably didn't want to be around him because Lori had colored her yeah perception of him i was thinking uh, that maybe she was spared if she had not really had any kind of knowledge or awareness of him if she was you know two or something but i think she was older and definitely aware of him yeah and either way that's a very disturbing situation to walk into at any age let alone at what 16 yes Lori's obsession with the end times began to consume her 
Her beliefs were shifting from mainstream Mormon beliefs to something a bit more radical. She once said that the end times would be so scary that she often thought it would be better to put her kids in a car and drive off the side of a cliff. Mm. No, no. Yeah, no. Hi, nope. it's time to get help and take her babies away. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The end. Everyone lived happily ever after. If <laughs> you're enjoying you. Grimm. <laughs> Lori went to visit her friend April and Kauai with Tylee in July 2018. Lori told April how obsessed she was with two dozen books about the end times written by an author, Chad Daybell. She told April that she had seen and talked to Jesus Christ face to face and also the angel Moroni. Although a Mormon, Lori's beliefs were becoming a bit too much even for April, who was also Mormon, so she wasn't really engaged in these conversations. So Lori just needed to find some like-minded friends. I don't want this, and I think that's the concern when you have someone thinking radically. You do not want them to find like-minded people. It just encourages the wrong things. Correct. In October 2018, Lori went to a church course about preparing for the second coming of Christ taught by a woman named Melanie Gibb. Melanie and Lori hit it off right away, and Lori learned that Melanie knew Chad Daybell, her absolute favorite author, who was going to publish Melanie's first book, Feel the Fire. That same month, Lori attended a small preparing a people meeting at Melanie's house where she met even more like-minded people. And um, sorry, quick question. Preparing a people, like, to eat? <laughs> <laughs> no. Preparing a people, it was a um, company that was developed to help teach people oh. about how to prepare for the a end people, times. Like a group of people. Oh. Yes. I see. PAP. Preparing a people. <laughs> no, there's no cannibalism involved in this okay. story, though. It, oh. Yeah. No, that's that's not in here. We've just, had so many fun discussions about that recently. That yeah. It's on my mind. Just the end of days. You're just going to have to settle okay. for that. People eventually cook in the end times, but not, not to eat. Yeah. Okay. So Lori attended the preparing a people meeting, not cannibalism, <laughs> at Melanie's house where uh, she felt free enough to share her story, which I'm going to share with you. As a side note, I just want to say that I am not here to mock religion or any religious beliefs. You do you. Mm -hmm. But Lori's actions color my opinion of her thoughts and comments. And in this case, even the church did not agree with Lori's beliefs. Right. And it was ultimately her beliefs that led to me talking about this story today. So yeah. yep, yep. I just wanted to point that out so that nobody comes for me accusing me of mocking the Mormon faith or religion no. or anything else because it gets wild. So yeah. this seems like it is a Lori centric issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. This is a special subset of people. And if it justifies the behavior in this case, then fuck them. <laughs> just as a side note. <laughs> but I digress. Lori said that she was a personal witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ and that it was a long road to get to know him, but that they were tight now. Lori said she was a chosen one and that she no longer needed to sleep because angels woke her up to instruct her on doing God's work. She explained her failed marriage to Joe Ryan and what a terrible person he was supposedly. She wanted to kill him and she looked to the scriptures to justify her thoughts and desires. She found a passage that would justify murdering him but she said she just wanted to stop the bleeding and the pain. So she went to the temple instead. She was given a temple recommend in order to enter the Mormon temple to pray. And she started going every week and then every day. She said that the Lord was patient and kind and that he forgave her all of her sins and then sent her on a mission. While in the temple, she saw a spirit sister who was one of Charles's aunts. And she kissed Lori on the cheek and then disappeared into the wall. 
Lori said that Jesus told her that he's preparing them and that everyone that dies and goes to the other side does so as part of their mission. She then said, your kids are adults in eternity. They're your friends. They're alone to you for the short time. They're adults and they have their own missions and their own eternity to live. We do not need to worry about the souls of our children. We do not have to worry. Lori finished by explaining that she was singled out for this mission and that she has a memory of her prior lives and she's been a warrior fighting for the savior. She only thought she was sweet and innocent. Everyone applauded. Um, so the, uh, your kids are adults in eternity, meaning like, is that trying to have an excuse to treat them like adults and not children and to, what is, what is this woman saying? She's just saying that you don't have to worry about the souls of your children if they die because they're adults in eternity. That's how I take it. I see. I took it as like I got concerned that maybe she was either gonna she was already not taking care of her kids really, but that she was gonna do something with like the argument that they're adults. So I don't know. That's where my mind went. I feel like Lori maybe did some peyote, and she's <laughs> going on a journey here, um, courtesy of the peyote. That would make me feel better about all of it. I, I'm what I'm trying to understand in that is like. Okay, so the Lord is patient and the Lord is kind, but I feel like her mission is not going to be kind at all. <laughs> Whatever the mission is she is charged with, I feel like it would probably go against the teachings of just mm-hmm. about any church. Mm-hmm. And there are some people in this story who are going to agree with your assessment of her beliefs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Only some? Well, she did find yes. like-minded people. That's true. She did. Yeah, the, they did applaud after that, mm-hmm. so... <laughs> they did. It what's was the what's the opposite of applauding? Booing. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 that's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> Throw tomatoes. <laughs> the next week, Lori and Melanie went to a preparing a people conference in Utah, which was 415 miles away, according to MapQuest. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really like 320 <laughs> if you didn't take wagons. Yeah, I was using MapQuest again today, and I thought of you both. Were you really? I was. What is single-handedly keeping MapQuest relevant? <laughs> did you print it out? I think I made that joke. Made that joke the last time too. I did not print it out. No, I think of that commercial. You don't need to print the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So the guest speaker at this conference was none other than Chad Daybell. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Let's take a minute to talk about Mr. Chad and his background. Super excited to talk about Chad Daybell. (laughs) (laughs) Chad Guy Daybell was born on August 11th, 1968 to Jack and Sheila Daybell. Chad had a somewhat normal childhood. He played t-ball, was a Cub Scout, and was a voracious reader. Maybe he was the watcher. Maybe. He excelled at basketball and was regularly on the honor roll. I say he had a somewhat normal childhood because Chad was especially fascinated by death, even as a child. In the fourth grade, he wrote his first book called The Murder of Dr. J and His Assistant. I'm sorry, in what grade? Fourth. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I think it probably was like a short story. Okay, but but still the topic. (laughs) I I was raised by unsolved mysteries over here. I'm not going to, I'm not faulting him for writing a murder (laughs) mystery in fourth grade. I definitely could have done the same. I think kids can probably have morbid curiosities and not be little sociopaths, but I'm not sure that was Chad. Mm. When he was 13, he was walking home from school and there was a field of flowers with honeybees on them. 
Chad stopped and he looked at them and he just stomped one out. I knew we were going to say he stomped on the flowers. Oh, what a little shit. Or the, the bees. bees. Oh. Stomped on the bee. Okay, I'm still upset about that, but I thought he was destroying beauty as well. <laughs> well, he is. Because the bees are on the flowers. Yeah, yeah. He was strangely fascinated by it. He proceeded to kill 120 bees. That And that's why we have a bee population <laughs> issue today. It is. Fun fact. Grim fact. Actually. It is a grim Someone fact. Said. It's all Chad Daybell's fault. <laughs> wow. When the entire ecosystem collapses, it's Chad Daybell's fault. Yeah. Okay. All right. Global warming. Thanks, Chad. Chad Daybell. <laughs> that's going to be my... Thanks a lot, Chad. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of thanks, Obama. It's thanks, Chad. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Chad. Chad. So he proceeded to kill 120 bees until he heard a loud voice order him to stop, which he looked around and he didn't see anybody. So he believed it was an angel that was fed up with him killing God's creatures. I believe that too. Me too. It sounds reasonable. Yeah. Great job for someone obsessed with death. Grave digger. Mm. Chad worked as a grave digger his senior year of high school and worked the job on and off for the next 30 years. Oh, can you just imagine like your classmate working that job and like you're just like talking about what you did on the weekend and he's like i dug five graves this weekend it's just it, it just a very morbid curiosity yeah, to have as yeah. a child in ninth grade chad had a spiritual awakening when a spirit rushed into his room while he was reading the book of mormon <laughs> as, as spirits do yep yeah chad was the seminary class president and wanted to go on a mission and attend college in the summer of his senior year, Chad had his first near-death experience that changed his life forever. Wasn't his entire career a near-death experience? Oh, it was. <laughs> Chad was going cliff jumping in the Flaming Gorge Reservoir with other LDS church members. When it was Chad's turn, he said that the fall felt like it took forever, and when he hit the water, it felt like concrete. He saw a blinding flash of white light and felt a sharp shock in his whole body. That was your neck breaking. (laughs) Yep. He heard an audible pop at the base of his skull and thought he broke his neck. Oh, yeah. Okay. But realized it was just his spirit partly leaving his body through his head. Oh, yeah. That happens to mine pretty frequently, too. I keep... I I just stopped laughing so hard. I know. I keep leaning forward (laughs) and banging my my headphones on the microphone. I'm sorry. Banging on the drums all day. I don't want to work. I just want to bang on my drums all day. Thank you for getting that. (laughs) The good news is, guys, his spirit knees got stuck in his skull, so his spirit didn't make it all the way out of his body. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God. I was really worried about his spirit, and I'm very happy his knees corrected that for me. I was trying very quickly to think if there was some joke about like a big need person. And I, I really can't think of one. Big knees, you know what they say. Well, if the knees hadn't stopped him, the feet would have. So while Chad was in this state, he saw an endless white plane in all directions and heard a deep, rich melody. All of his pain disappeared and he felt a soothing warmth until his body floated to the surface and his spirit fell back into its proper place. That's what happens when your spinal cord is severed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when you break your neck, that's what happens. That's the paralysis you're feeling (laughs) or not feeling. (laughs) Chad decided that when his spirit left his body, it ripped a hole in his personal veil, which never fully closed. Uh Must have been the knees. (laughs) 
The knees just ripped it right open. <laughs> Can't be contained. <laughs> that torn veil allowed him to differentiate between good and bad spirits, as well as sense angels and disembodied spirits around him. Oh, so he could like see through the veil, through the torn veil. I don't know what a veil is. <laughs> well, I mean, I know what a veil is, but not in this context. Yeah, I think it's like if you're talking about like the spirit veil. Like I'm the... not ever talking about the spirit veil. <laughs> could, could we just imagine for a second, like, say he can see all of these spirits now because there's a, a tear in the veil so he can see the living and, and the, the dead. I, I'm already upset at how many other people are around when I try to go out in public. Imagine how much more crowded it is when you've got all these spirits up in yeah. your shit as well. I didn't think about that, but now I'm going to. Now you will. <laughs> and I'm reminded of the Family Guy episode where they go into the hotel room and turn on the black light and it's like full of farm animals. <laughs> I think yes. it's probably like that. It's like that, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> Chad attended college at Brigham Young University, which is owned by the LDS Church. <laughs> of course he fucking went to Brigham Young. <laughs> yeah. In the summer, he went on a mission trip to New Jersey to spread the Mormon word. His missionary group members described him as humble and unassuming, and he was loved and respected by all. Which I think it's funny that he had a mission trip to New Jersey, because whenever I've heard of mission trips, it's like to Africa, yes. or like these like run-down areas yep. of the world, and they're like, yep. he went to New Jersey. Well, I'm sorry. Not, sorry, run-down areas of the world. <laughs> sorry, sorry kidding. New Jersey. We love you. Day, we love you. <laughs> day, New Jersey. Right? Oh, Day and Lori. Yeah. Lori, do you have something to tell us? Ladies, we haven't forgotten about you. We love you. <laughs> Did Chad come knock on your door? <laughs> come and knock on my door. Okay, let's read it in. <laughs> a lot of singing today. In the summer of 89, Chad was thumbing through a high school yearbook when he saw a picture of Tammy Douglas, and he said he felt the most electrifying shock of his life when he saw her face. He found out who she was and asked her out on a date at an LDS singles event. The couple was soon going steady. Tammy was a cemetery secretary and got Chad a job as a grave digger at the local cemetery. Can you say that 10 times fast, please? Cemetery secretary. <laughs> Match made in heaven. Yeah. 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 Chad said he prayed to God if he should marry Tammy and got a resounding yes in reply. He proposed at Thanksgiving and Tammy accepted. The couple had their engagement pictures taken at the cemetery, which is actually pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. If you forget all the other details, then that's yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the couple were married in March 1990. I bet you Chad told her all about his spirit knees. Oh, totally. <laughs> He's like, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. <laughs> He's like, don't tear your veil. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, I meant like her <laughs> wedding when they got married. God. I mean, yeah, when they got married, there was oh, going to be a tear in the veil. Oh, oh. He was tearing her personal veil. Oh, <laughs> no. Chad had his second near-death experience in May 1993. He was out at the beach with his family, and he was out swimming alone when suddenly the sky darkened and he heard a loud voice commanding him to cling to the rocks. A 15-foot wave crashed down onto him and sucked him into another world, where he saw the proverbial tunnel of light. Chad said he was completely out of his body this time and saw long-deceased relatives who told him of the glorious future that he had ahead of him with Tammy. Chad was returned to his body, but his personal veil had been ripped open even wider during this experience, giving him waking visions and deja vu. I really feel the need to Google a personal veil, but I'm also <laughs> terrified of the results. I have to put safe search on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like, I feel like mediums would be okay. able to see like beyond the veil. No, it's just like into another world. 
I'm a very spiritual person. It's <laughs> apparently. Yeah, it's like you can't see it because you're veiled, but other people have the ability to see through the veil. Beyond, okay. yes, beyond and, the and veil. And in his case, he did not. Something happened to him on two occasions that made him be yeah. able to see through it. Because it sounds very negative, but it seems like it would be a positive to be able to see through the veil. Or not, or not I have a so. veil. I just love the way you're saying you're like, am I saying that properly? He's <laughs> he's looking through his veil. He has binoculars I mean, through I, the hole in his veil. Just picturing a wedding veil is all I have <laughs> in my mind. And I pictured first it was like tulle and it was oh. ripped. And then, you know. I was picturing like a literal like, like if you were looking outside, like a, a literal like tear in like the fabric of life. And you could like oh. see through it. That's deep. <laughs> you can envision it however you want to envision it. Because it doesn't fucking exist. <laughs> but Chad's was ripped. Whatever whatever you're envisioning, there's a rip in it. And that was Chad's. Okay. okay. <laughs> now there's a bigger rip. Mm-hmm. No, okay. now it's just torn the fuck open. It is. Yep. So now I don't even have to envision anything because it's it, The veil's open. just open. It's gone. Yep. The veil's open. Timmy and Chad went on to have three sons and two daughters together. Chad started out a career in publishing, working at a copy desk at a busy local newspaper. Chad quit after several years because he hated copy editing. He went back to digging graves. One Mm -hmm. day while he was digging in the cemetery, Chad heard the voice of his grandfather who told him it was time for him to start writing books. Gotta follow your passion. Grave digging. (laughs) Mm. After that, the complete plot of his first book came to him and he was immediately offered a book contract for the manuscript when he submitted it to a local LDS publisher a few weeks later. It's actually pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. It is pretty impressive. Chad accepted a job as a production manager for his publishing company in early 2001. He worked for that publishing company until 2004 when he decided to venture out on his own. He started the Spring Creek Book Company, which did well at first, but abruptly went out of business in late 2008. Chad returned to the cemetery business again in 2009, but continued to write books at night. In 2013, Spring Creek Books was relaunched to publish Chad's most recent books. In 2015, the Daybell family moved to Rexburg, Idaho, because a voice told Chad that Rexburg would be the site of where the righteous 144,000 would gather and ride out the end times. Chad took a job there as a sales associate for a printing company that would now be printing Spring Creek Books, and he started giving lectures and talks to promote his books, including his autobiography, Living on the Edge of Heaven. Chad had quite a fan base, and people were very interested in what he had to say. So I mentioned this before, but in 2017, a company called Preparing a People was formed to organize podcasts and events about surviving the end times. The owners knew Chad Daybell and moved to Rexburg, Idaho after he did. They started hosting conferences, which were immediately successful. And this is how Chad and Lori met at the conference in Utah. Hmm. Lori met Chad at his book signing after he delivered a speech on stage. Chad and Lori had an instant connection and were soon exchanging spiritual experiences, beliefs, and visions, and they were making eyes at each other the whole time. Chad told Lori that his spiritual gifts revealed that she was a translated being and that they'd been married seven times before in previous lives. I kind of, when you said they were making eyes at each other, I was imagining that it was like at his lecture and he's talking. So I had visions of stepbrothers <laughs> when they meet. I feel like this is his way of saying, God is going to allow me to cheat on my wife with you, Lori, because we, we are, we always uh-huh. are together, you and I. In every life. In every life. In every life. So why not together. this one? <laughs> Chad told Lori that she was one of the chosen ones and that together they would change the world. 
Lori and Chad were inseparable the rest of the conference, and Chad laid it on thick to Lori, telling her that she had secret spiritual powers that only he could unleash. If I was Lori, I would have been like, I bet you say that to all the pretty girls. <laughs> <laughs> Lori felt like her whole life had led her to this man, and he was finally validating all of her beliefs. At the end of the conference, Chad and Lori exchanged phone numbers and planned to meet up again in a couple of weeks at one of Chad's speaking events. On the drive back from the conference, Melanie said that Lori could not stop talking about Chad, whom Lori knew was married with five children. But Lori said she was attracted to him spiritually and that they were both intrigued by their past marriages on Earth and other planets. I mean, guys, who could ignore that kind of celestial chemistry? <laughs> I mean, it's not cheating if it happened in a past life. Or, it's true. Or on Saturn. Right. No, that that's also fair game. Like international waters, it's interplanetary <laughs> space. <laughs> Whatever makes you sleep better at night. <laughs> While at the conference... Chad had explained to Lori how he could differentiate between good and bad spirits, and Lori had asked Chad to rank everyone in her life as light or dark. When Chad got home, he immediately created a detailed list for Lori. Among the dark spirits in Lori's life were her daughter, Tylee, William LaJoya, Colby's wife, Kelsey, and her third husband, Joe Ryan. Some of the light spirits were Charles, JJ, Lori's parents, Lori's brothers, and her sister. And in addition to the breakdown between light and dark, there was a ranking from zero to six on each side of the spectrum. Chad provided his rubric to Lori when he emailed her the family breakdown so that she understood where his numbers came from. For example, Chad said that most stake presidents and general authorities are a four and most apostles are level five. I'm sorry, S stake presidents as in S-T-A-K-E or S-T-E-A-K? S. T-A-K-E. Oh. <laughs> okay, because I'm sitting over here thinking like the president of the Omaha State Club or, or some <laughs> chapter or subsidiary. That's exactly what I was thinking. No, no. A stake president, I believe in a general authority as well. These are um, ranking members in the LDS church. Oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense than yeah, my thing. That's, yeah. yeah, that's fair. But now I want steak. <laughs> <laughs> I would rate steak uh, as a 5.0 L. <laughs> <laughs> steak is definitely on the light side of the spectrum. It's not yeah. dark. Yeah. If you put it on the dark side, it's not good anymore. <laughs> Can't overcook it. Uh, but I like my steak more dead. Oh, no. Ugh. I know. I'm working no. on it. No. 4.1 and above has made a covenant with their respective side. But, so the light and the dark. And Chad ranked Tylee a 4.1D for dark, which may have been because her father, Joe Ryan, was a 4.3. But that's hard to say because, like, whose line is it anyway? It looks like the rules are made up and the points don't matter. <laughs> Seriously. Mm -hmm. So if Tylee, who is the spawn of Lori, is a 4.1D, where does Lori fall oh, on well, the spectrum? She was light, obviously. Oh, of course. Oh, sure. She was a 4.3L. Oh, so room for improvement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, Tylee got her dark side from her father. <laughs> got it. So you, I guess making the covenant with your side probably means like you're too far gone to that side to ever switch to the other, maybe? I don't know of anybody in this story who went from the dark side to the light side, but it seems like it goes the other way. Mm, okay, you go from light to dark. Yes. But again... I think they just make it up to suit their beliefs in that moment. So um, at, 
At least he shared the rubric. He proved his work to Lori. He did, yeah. yeah. It's like in a Google sheet. Show your work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. After the conference, Lori and Chad were in constant contact, emailing and talking to each other on burner phones since they were both married. Mm-hmm. Lori would send Chad sexy videos of her nightly dance sessions in her mirrored room. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you like that? It's mm-hmm. just hysterical. <laughs> And Lori told Melanie that Chad constructed a spiritual portal in her closet so that he could visit her spiritually whenever he wanted and so that they could begin work on their grand mission. Okay, I I have to be real with you. I don't want anybody creating a spiritual portal in my closet. Like, this is my time. Do not interfere in my closet. My clothing reside in there. Thank you very much. Don't suck those through your portal. Now, see, I, you feel that way about your closet. That's how I feel about my mirrored room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with Colby, though. I, I don't want spiritual portals in my house anywhere. I don't care where you put them. I don't want them in there. <laughs> Those are outside portals. <laughs> yeah. If you put it in my backyard, maybe I'm okay with it. But I don't know. It's pro- you know, it probably was just more convenient for her to work on their mission, their right. spiritual mission in yeah. her closet. He than, comes to her. Yes, it's than like the, outside. The original work from home. Yeah, actually. It was, yeah. Very forward thinking. Mm -hmm. That was. I like that. Lori explained that part of their purpose and their mission was to rid the world of evil spirits or zombies, as Chad called them. Chad and Lori would say a special prayer for a particular state and then would check in the portal to see how many zombies died because of their prayer. Now, was their preference mushrooms or LSD? (laughs) No peyote, though, right? You just you ruled that one out. Maybe LSD, because they were LDS. Oh. But um, tis. That was deep. Yeah, but seriously, that is... We are far, far beyond any of the beliefs, I believe, of the Mormon church and LDS yeah. yes. and all that. This mm-hmm. is... They are not well, they I They are think. in a world of their own. Yeah. A world of their own. Melanie could obviously see how infatuated Chad and Lori were with each other. And she told Lori that her and Chad should just divorce their spouses so that they could be together. But Lori said that was forbidden. I'm not sure how divorce four plays into the equation as opposed to divorce one, but apparently it mattered now. And like, is it that much worse than cheating? Yeah. I mean, they may have only been spiritually cheating. Uh, Yeah. Arguably worse. Yeah. Uh, It didn't really matter because Lori told Melanie that her and Chad secretly snuck into the Mormon temple to seal themselves together for eternity, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely blasphemous in the Mormon church. So I think it's safe to say that Lori's moral compass is broken in every direction at this point. It feels that way. Yes. And Chad was not a good dude either. No. Chad's behavior with women was sketchy, period. He was married to Tammy, was at least spiritually cheating on her with Lori, although I suspect it may have been physical at that point as well. And during the same time, he was also accused of sexually assaulting one of his book writers, Julie. Julie said she went to a business breakfast with Chad, where Chad was telling Julie that him and Lori had been married in past lives, which Julie said that Chad said to her too. And I knew it. He says it to all the pretty women. Yeah. What a line. Yeah. Right. After breakfast, Julie and Chad went to an energy healing session, and she accused Chad of sexually assaulting her in some way later that day. Chad apparently apologized to her in several text messages, but Julie never saw Chad again. So I just wanted to make sure that no one was thinking that Chad was a saint over here. Right. Just wanted to include that. No, I would put him as like a 4.1, no, 4.4 D. Oh, wow. He's definitely a covenant with the dark. Definitely. He's definitely a D. 
He's definitely a D for sure. <laughs> In January 2019, Lori and Charles, who was still Lori's husband, although who could tell, moved into a new rental house in Gilbert, Arizona. It was at this time that Chad delivered some unfortunate news to Lori. Charles's body had been taken over by a dark spirit named Nick Schneider, who was a man who had recently died and had been roaming around in limbo as a demon until he found Charles's body. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing so I'm like... On January 22nd, 2019, Chad sent Lori an email with the subject, demon with a name Nick Schneider. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I can't help it. I, he's just making shit up now. You're right. This is whose line rules. Now yeah. they're playing scenes from a hat. Right. <laughs> yep. It's, it's off the rails. Yeah. It's off the rails. Much like us. Mm-hmm. That email included a further breakdown of some of the past lives of Lori's family members. And after receiving this email, it appeared that Lori stopped filling JJ's prescription for Risperidone, which was a strong antipsychotic medication that he took for his autism. And for the next eight months, JJ's condition worsened. Oh, come on. Now, I will say for a certain period of time, people did say that Lori was a very attentive mom. Her friend April said that, you know, Tylee and JJ and Colby were her whole world. So there was a transition at some point. Yeah. Um, and right now it's not good. It sounds like she's devolving. Mm-hmm. She is, yes. Lori and Chad were in the business of gathering followers to prepare for the end times and to help them deal with the zombies and demons like Nick Schneider. I'm so <laughs> sorry. Laugh every time. It's just, it's hysterical that A, you would name him, and then B, that it's just, it's what... That's hysterical. Well, they didn't name him. He was a demon <laughs> okay, that was roaming sure. around in limbo, and he found Charles's body. Yeah, that's a that, good point. Yeah. So, I yeah. guess I thought that demons would have um, more threatening names. Yes, that's what I'm reacting to. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. No, Nick Schneider. <laughs> I don't think like Beelzebub the Damned. <laughs> um, or Nick. Nick Schneider equally as terrifying strikes fear into many a heart. <laughs> Oh, so Lori enlisted the help of her brother, Alex, and her niece, Melanie. She also looped in a woman named Zulima Pastines, who believed that she had been told by God to protect Lori against Charles, whom she called Hiplos. Is that? Is That's that... better. I like Hiplos. It better sounds, than Nick Schneider. Sounds, it sounds more demonic. Yes. Hiplos. Hiplos. She informed Lori that she had had a vision that she could create storms and fire and now had the eye of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is giving me Catherine Knight vibes where every sentence you say is more yes. unbelievable than the previous. Charles could see that Lori was distancing herself and grew increasingly concerned as her radical beliefs continued to develop and grow. Things reached ahead on January 29th, 2019. Charles left the house at 5 a.m. for an overnight business trip to Houston. As soon as he left, Lori transferred $35,000 from his business account, leaving just $7 in the account, so Charles was unable to make payroll for his finance business that week. Wow. When Charles landed in Houston, Lori called him and told him what she had done, and also told him that she was now a god and was busy gathering the $144,000 for the second coming of Christ, which was scheduled for July 2020. And she needed $35,000. That's a lot of guests to prepare for. I know. They need all the funds that they can get. Yeah. Lori told Charles that if he interfered with her mission, she would murder him. And then she <laughs> hung up. <laughs> that, that's so extreme. It's aggressive. Charles was like, and I stayed in Houston. <laughs> 
Charles called her back until Lori answered, and Lori told him that she knew he was Nick Schneider. She said, you're not Charles, you're Nick Schneider. I don't know who you are or what you did with Charles, but I can murder you now with my powers. Lori hung up and stopped answering Charles. Well, because it was Nick. Right. Can't answer Nick. From there, Lori's friend Melanie came over, and the two went to the airport and moved Charles's car from the airport parking lot to a friend's house. She then canceled Charles's plane ticket home and had a locksmith come change all of the locks. Melanie and Lori packed up all of Charles's clothes, belongings, computer, and business files and hid them in the house. And then Lori checked into a hotel with Tylee, JJ, and the service dog, Bailey. I mean, honestly, probably better for Charles that she canceled his return trip home. Except JJ is still there. And Charles is very concerned about the children. As he should be. Yes. Somebody should be. Somebody should care. I'm just very concerned, period. Yeah. The next day, Charles called his friend and ward bishop and had a conference call with Lori. On the call, Lori threatened to destroy Charles, told him not to bother coming home as all of his stuff was gone, and when Charles asked about JJ, Lori said that he could have him because she didn't want him anymore. Oh. Charles was nervous. Yeah. He went to the airport and found out that Lori had canceled his ticket and he had to scrape together $600 for a standby flight. While he was waiting, he called Gilbert Police, who sent him the necessary paperwork for an emergency mental health petition for Lori to undergo a mandatory psych evaluation. Good. That's, I was wondering when we were going to get some like authorities involved mm-hmm. here. When Charles got home, he found that his truck was missing from the airport. He had to take a taxi to the healthcare facility to drop off the mental health petition paperwork for a 72-hour hold, which resulted in Gilbert Police receiving a pickup order for Lori. A friend picked Charles up to bring him home, and while on the way, Lori called to say that she had the kids at a hotel. She told Charles she wanted nothing further to do with him or the kids and that she had a more important mission to carry out. Charles got home and realized that all of the locks had been changed, so he called the police to do a welfare check on JJ and Tylee because he was concerned for their safety. Yeah. Yeah. Charles told the police officers that the kids were only 6 and 16 and that he's been trying to get in touch with them for two days. He said that Lori had lost her mind and that they are LDS and Lori thinks she's a resurrected being and a god. The officer asked what made Lori a danger to herself and others, and Charles said that Lori threatened to murder him, saying she'll have him destroyed. Charles explained that Lori had lost her reality and that it had been going on for about four to five years but had gotten really bad recently. Charles said he didn't know what she was going to do with the children. He wasn't sure if she was going to flee or if she was going to hurt them. The officer asked whether Lori was on any medication, and Charles explained that Lori wouldn't go to the doctor because she's a translated being that cannot be killed, and the doctors would find out. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't want that now, would we? No. That information can't get out. No. The officers and Charles eventually got into the house and found it empty. Charles said if JJ wasn't at school tomorrow, he'd have to call the police again. At 8 a.m. the next day, Lori pulled up to JJ's school to drop him off. Charles went to her car and took her phone and wallet out of it. He found the hotel key to the Hyatt and called the police, asking an officer to meet him there. Charles explained to the officers again that Lori was off the deep end. He suggested that they all meet back at JJ's school during pickup time to talk. The police wouldn't need to do that, however, because Lori showed up with Tylee and Melanie Gibb at the Gilbert Police Department to make a harassment claim against Charles. Lori wanted to file a report for her stolen phone and purse. Can you I, believe the balls on her? No, I can't. <laughs> no, and I also can't imagine what the police were thinking, because if I'm sitting here thinking this and hearing all the detail, I can only imagine how their heads must have been spinning. 
Yeah. Lori told police that she'd gotten into an argument with Charles because she'd found evidence that he was cheating and he got very defensive. What a lying bitch. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, she's turning in on everybody else. She took the kids to a hotel because she knew he was coming home. She said that Charles had acted this way before and that they had to leave to go to hotels until he calms down. Lori said she didn't want to press charges, but that if they could get the purse back, that would be lovely. She was really mad about her lip gloss. Yeah. That's what she told officers. While Lori was talking to the police, Charles contacted them about the order for the psychiatric evaluation. The officer advised Lori that she was going to be taken to the health center where she could be committed for an evaluation. The officer told her that she was free to go while the paperwork was being processed, but that they would come to get her if she didn't go on her own after that. Lori made a joke about whether the facility had a gym or a nice place for her to get some sleep finally. Following the interview, Lori went to the health center of her own accord and underwent a psych evaluation that she passed with flying colors. I was afraid of that. It sounds like she's able to turn it on or off, like, depending on what she needs. She's not stupid. No. Why did she need a nice place to sleep? She's a god. She doesn't have to sleep anymore. (laughs) She said it herself. I I know. I think she's just making a joke. She was very charming. The officers laughed. They just loved her. She's the woman in the situation, which, again, it it certainly happens that the abuse is reversed. But it is often the the fact that, you know, she could have been telling the truth and the man really was abusing her or she's had to go to hotels. So I think that the police were probably more inclined to believe her, she unfortunately. Had, she had Tylee with her, too. And Tylee backs up the story for Lori. Because she's been brainwashed since she was an mm-hmm. infant. Mm-hmm. So the police closed their file. Mm -hmm. Four days later, Charles filed an order of protection against Lori, claiming that she was a danger to JJ. Lori evaded service, but she eventually returned JJ to Charles, but refused to give Charles JJ's medication or his iPad with special developmental apps on it. Around the same time, Charles found the email regarding the family light and dark rankings, and he was enraged. Yeah. On February 8th, 2019, Charles filed for divorce and sole custody of JJ. During his first meeting with his divorce attorney, Charles said that if anything happened to him, Lori and her brother Alex were behind it. His attorney advised him to change his life insurance beneficiary to try to remove some of the incentive to murder him. Yep. Yep. Charles found that Lori had changed the password to his account when he went to log in, but he was able to access it and change the beneficiary to his sister, Kay. Good. Two days after Charles filed for divorce, Lori took off to Hawaii with Tylee and stayed with her friend April. April described Lori as a little manic during that time. Lori told April that Charles was having an affair and that he was a zombie now with a demon living inside of him named Nick Schneider. Ain't that a bitch. (laughs) I hate when that happens. I hate when I'm already a zombie and then a demon also becomes (laughs) to be inside of me. I think he's a zombie because there's a demon oh, inside of okay. him. okay. I thought they were just, like, cohabitating. They go, <laughs> hand in, they go hand in hand. My bad. <laughs> Lori casually told April that she expected a call soon that Charles was dead. Lori said that she wanted to start a new life in Hawaii with Tylee and that she was done with JJ. Not long after, Lori returned to the mainland telling April that they had to leave because Tylee got a job. Thankfully, poor JJ still had his father, Charles, during this time, who was working on obtaining sole custody of him. Charles was also in the process of serving Lori with the divorce papers, but inexplicably before they were served, Charles told his attorney to drop it and the divorce case was dismissed. What? I don't know. Inexplicable. (laughs) Yeah. Indeed. But I want you to splick. (laughs) I can't splick. It's inexplicable. Please. (laughs) 
Please, Splick. <laughs> Every day during this time, Charles texted Lori a picture of JJ begging her to return for his sake. Charles said JJ missed her and did not understand where she went. Maybe that's the real Charles. And earlier we were just dealing with Nick. Oh, it's a good point, yeah. actually. Maybe. No, but in all seriousness, why, why at that point would you want to have her back? I think he just wanted that family unit for JJ, right. especially with JJ having special needs. Like he needs that stability in that family unit. So I think he was hoping that if he dropped it, like he, he still thought he could save her, that yeah, like she would snap out of it. Yeah. Uh, she yeah. seems beyond saving to me at this point yeah. in time. And what no stability level that Lori could bring to their life would be worth exposing JJ to exactly. at this point no. in time. Yeah. At the end of March, when Charles was packing up the house in Arizona to move to Houston, Lori just waltzed in and asked why Charles was keeping JJ from her. Charles and Lori went into a bedroom and they ended up reconciling. Mm -hmm. Charles was over the moon to have Lori back for his sake and for JJ's. Mm -hmm. Melanie was confused why Lori was going back to him as well. And Lori said that she'd been told by the Lord to get Charles's finances in order. Uh, see, I was worried because we have seen Lori be manipulative and I think we're seeing it right now. So yep. mm -hmm. what better way to get someone's uh, passwords than mm -hmm. to sleep with them? Mm-hmm. Lori, Tylee, and JJ moved into Charles's rental home in Houston in the beginning of April. Lori continued to take money from Charles's account and transfer it into her own accounts that he could not access. Two months after moving to Houston, Lori told Charles that it was over and that she wanted to move back to Chandler, Arizona, where Charles rented a condo for them. Lori was adamant that the marriage was over, but she refused to give Charles a divorce because she didn't want a fourth one to her name. Which I'm getting Ross Geller vibes from friends. He's like, by the way, we're still married because I don't want another divorce on my file. <laughs> when Lori moved back to Arizona in June, her and her followers began working on the dark spirit in Charles, declaring war against Hiplos. On June 21st, Lori went online and filled in a free form application to find out how many social security disability payments she could get if Charles met an untimely end. On June 29th, Charles told Lori's brother Adam that Lori was having an affair with Chad Daybell and that Charles was going to tell Chad's wife Tammy about it. Charles had found an email to Chad allegedly from Charles sent from a new email account set up in his name that he had not set up. The email asked Chad to come to Arizona to help Charles ghostwrite a book that Charles was working on. In the email, Charles offered to pay for his flight and cover his expenses because talking in person would be more valuable than a phone call or video chat. Charles obviously had not written the email, and when Charles confronted Lori, she denied knowing anything about it. Charles told Lori to come clean about her affair within 24 hours, or he was going to tell Tammy what was going on. Charles forwarded the letter to Lori's brother Adam and asked him to stage an intervention for Lori. Charles also wanted Adam to record Lori's heretics so that he could get her excommunicated from the church to try to get her to snap out of it. Oh, creative. Charles was dead less than two weeks later. Oh, uh, yeah, it, yeah. I, I felt that that was coming very soon. So that's where I'm going to stop for today. Oh, what? Um, but I want to know what happened to Charles. <laughs> so I'm so sorry to leave you hanging, but there's some good news and bad news about this two-parter. Bad news first. 
The bad news is that you have to wait a week for the conclusion of the story, which only gets more intense. Oh my God. The good news is that we did this to ensure that you do not have a disruption in your regularly scheduled programming for the holidays, because let me tell you, working a full-time job, doing grim and prepping for the holidays is enough to make all of us as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as Lori Vallow. <laughs> mm -hmm. So rather than take a full week off, we decided to split up this case because there's so much information. <laughs> So feel free to curse my name, but also we love you and don't want you to have to miss a week. So if you're enjoying listening to Grimm, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. Um, just not right after this. Wait till part two comes out so you're not <laughs> mad at us when you do it. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grimm, a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grimm, a true crime podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is very grim. Grim.